my real motivation is just that I really want to learn how things work. I mean, I want to know how to solve this problem, right? And I feel like this is a good approach to problem solving, because if you want to learn how to solve a problem, you don't necessarily just write the code and call it a day. You want to learn more about the problem. It's very educational and very fun, at least for me. Welcome to ArrayCast episode 74. My name is Connor and today with us we've got our four panelists plus a special guest that we are going to get to introducing in a few minutes. First we're going to go around though and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, then go to Marshall and finish with Adam. I'm Bob Terrio and I am a J enthusiast. I'm Stephen Taylor. I know something about APL and Q. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I've worked with uh, J and APL and BQN and Singeli and now K. I'm Adam Botsowski. I started with APL. I stick to APL. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I am a polyglot programmer, maybe not even cons- compared to our guest today, but uh, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll cover that in a few minutes. Uh, massive array language fan and host of this podcast. Before we get to introducing our guest, I believe we've got three announcements. We've got one from Stephen, who we'll start with, and then we'll go over to Adam for the last two. Yes, Connor, this month... KX released KDB 4.1. It's got uh, some very interesting new features to make it more powerful, like multi-threaded data loading. But (laughs) you know me, I'm only here for the poetry. I'm interested in the new language features, which include a dictionary literal syntax, pattern matching in assignments and Lambda signatures, and type checking and filter functions so you can write even more beautifully expressive code than you could before. Ooh, we are, I mean, already on our list, we have, we won't, we won't spoil the surprise because we don't have any of them confirmed, but we have some attendees of KXCon lined up. But now that you mentioned that, the pattern matching, that was from Oleg and Pierre's talk. Uh, they previewed this feature, I think, at KXCon 23. So we will have to get someone, whether it's Oleg or Pierre or someone else from the core KX team, if they would like to, we'll have to get them on because that pattern matching stuff was awesome. Link will be in the show notes. Well, I'll go find the talk that talks about it. Uh, they gave a preview of that stuff. I think that one was recorded. I think they were all recorded. Anyways, and stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll get someone from the KX Core Language team on to, to talk all about these new features. All right. I interrupted. Over to Adam. And uh, yes, two more announcements. Right. So on uh, April 11, uh, there is something called Dyna. So that's like Dialogue North America, a meetup. Um, and uh, that's in New York. Um, it's not so much for array programming enthusiasts, although they're welcome. Um, it's really about uh, big commercial systems, small commercial systems, and um, especially about moving from APL vendor to APL vendor, which is something that can be easy, can be hard, um, and uh, what can be done about that. I think one thing that's really exciting about that meetup is the speakers. They're all APL experts, and there's a chance also to like sit down with them one-on-one. So if that's something, uh, check our show notes for a link to that. Um, and then in the previous episode, I, I mentioned a uh, a reaction video that I had 
made to the Prague Langcast's video about uh, APL and related languages. And turns out that Prague Langcast just came out with a reaction video to my reaction video. So check that out. Link in the show notes. And I think I think it might be more than just a reaction to the reaction video because I guess they did have BQN in episode four, but uh, yeah, they continue with they say they continue with uh, with BQN as well because they didn't really have time in the last episode to get into that. So yeah, we we as members of the Arraycast podcast panel and your host, we apologize. The video only came out like an hour ago, and YouTube only notified me of it like 20 minutes before we hit the record button on this, and I only was able to get through four minutes, which sounds bad because it sounds like there was an extra 16 minutes in there, but then I had to switch over to a different lecture. Anyways, we will, we will, I don't, I don't know if we will all watch it, but I'm going to finish watching it afterwards, and we might have more to say in episode 75. Uh, but yes, links for all of that stuff. Uh, KX 4.1, the KXCon lecture about uh, pattern matching and links to the meetup, uh, links to the podcast from Proglang Cast, even though the YouTube channel is Proglang Base, all in the show notes. And with that all out of the way, I am extremely excited to introduce our guest today. I believe her name is pronounced Camilla Shevchek. She will maybe pronounce me in a couple minutes or depending on how long my introduction is. And she is an extremely impressive programmer at the age of 19. She's already an international conference speaker, apparently has been listed on Wikipedia for some crazy programming feats. She knows, according to her bio, C++, APL list, x86, 8051, 6502, Z80 assemblies, Perl, Java, LaTeX, uh, the list goes on to mention others that she's com- comfortable with. Lua, TypeScript, ActionScript, Rust, Haskell, OCaml, and then is learning a bunch of other languages. And this is just the stuff she knows. Um, we will link to her Dialogue 23 talk on the APL array notation. I got partway through watching that talk. And while she was interning at Dialogue, she did a ton of stuff, primarily on the APL array notation. But also she implemented quad diff. She implemented reverse compose, which potentially means we might be doing, you know, tacit 5.5 or whatever, you know, mini tacit episode in the midst of this um, and a bunch more stuff. On top of that, she's got like a bajillion projects. We will link to her uh, about sort of me website. Also, I don't know how I'm going to attempt. And then once again, Camilla can correct me if I've said it incorrectly. Uh, your online alias you typically go by is Paleologos. Um, and I'll stop there. I'll let her correct the pronunciation of that. And and uh, there's so much stuff to talk about. But yeah, maybe I'll throw it over to you. You can correct my, correct my pronunciations and maybe give us a, a sort of brief background on how you have become so accomplished at your age at all of this different stuff because I am, I am dying to know. Well, that was just posted by curiosity, right? It's also what's driven me towards APL. It's not, uh, it's not like I was particularly interested in array programming or, you know, all the features of array languages that you see. To me, as a maybe 12-year-old, 13-year-old, it was just interesting that it was Swiggles. And it was rather compact and code challenges. So I thought that maybe I should learn it to see if it's comfortable to work with. I think it was a great decision overall. At 12 or 13. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I really enjoyed the EPL. I think that it really changed me as a programmer. Uh, because uh, I really find myself very productive when I think in terms of very um, high-level problems, right? And I no longer think of individual steps that I would write in an imperative language to accomplish a task. 
and instead, I think, in a high-level view of what really needs to be done. For instance, I was working on a uh, project, which is a neural network that can model JavaScript code. Uh, and the point of that was to create a golfing language uh, to be used in uh, PPCG in order to beat, hopefully, all the other existing golfing languages. So in order to train a neural network, you need to have a data set and a verification set, right? And you want to harvest the data set, for instance, using an SQL query to, to the code called database to get all the JavaScript programs. And then you have to filter them, right? And to me, it seems kind of obvious how you would filter them. But then I realized that if I wanted to write the filter in Java or C, it would be extremely long uh, because there's a lot of criterions, right? Like, for instance, you want to extract the actual code snippets from the posts, which are a CSV file. You want to remove the ones that have too long strings that are generally not very representative of the actual JavaScript program, right? And the API program that cleans up the whole thing is nine lines. And I have really never felt as productive as I do with APL. I mean, even if you look at the history of my projects, you'll notice that all the things that they made have been made after my initial exposure to APL. And a lot of the projects that you see listed that don't have the source code attached have been in some ways modeled with APL. That is very interesting, especially given that you've done projects in assembly because You've gone from like the most, I mean, other than ones and zeros, basically the lowest level of like, you need to code in instructions all the way to the highest level. And you're sort of, you know, you've come out of this experience saying that like, I like APL the best by far, just because I don't need to think in these like tiny steps. I can think at this extremely high level and understand what's going on under the hood, but be way more productive because I don't need to, I can avoid some of the detail and not spell that stuff out and just work in these high-level operations. Yes, there's actually a lot of high-level operations that you have to kind of execute in your head if you want to write performance assembly code by hand. Uh, it's a good but technical example of dividing by a constant in assembly. It's usually done uh, through modular arithmetic with a shifted multiplication. And how do you compute it is basically just a very complicated math formula, but you can write an APL program and then you feed the, the divisor and the generator to the assembly program that divides by the given value very quickly. That's amazing. I mean, and so how, how you said at 12 or 13, you started messing around with APL and, and falling in love. Were you like programming already at that point for a number of years? Or were you going through some course that was at school that was teaching you a bunch of stuff? Or was this all sort of on your own? Or, or like, how did you get to this point? Well, I have... I haven't never talked to a person who could actually program until I was maybe 18. Like in person, I've talked to people who could program via the internet. But, uh, well, my first introduction, even before Adam, was on IRC, on the now unfortunately dead Freenode network. Uh, there was an esoteric channel where people were discussing like some sort of a weird combinatorics problem. And uh, then I thought, oh, well, they're verifying their computations using that weird language. And they linked with the channel of J software on. Um, on Freenode, and I was really keen on learning it, but I wasn't mature enough to appreciate array languages, I think. And and what, what age was this? Oh, I don't even remember. That was maybe 2019. 2019, okay. Well, it was very difficult for me to appreciate because I was mostly a C programmer. I mean, I've got a very long way since then, but uh, I never really focused on algorithms or how you would write math code. 
I wasn't even that good at math before I learned APL. But uh, APL really gave me the uh, insight into how the theory of computing works. And you could really see this throughout the years in all the projects I've done. For instance, uh, Camilla Lisp is a somewhat controversial language, research language, uh, which I've made. It is built entirely on the premise that I want APL to be a math language. I don't want it to be a computer language necessarily. Interesting. So tell us more about this Camilla list, because I think that was going to be one of the main topics, and I, I listed it under the you know number of projects. But yeah, tell us, Camilla Lisp, is it a Lisp? Is it an APL? Is it both? Uh, what is Camilla Lisp? Jumping straight into the controversy. I was going to say there wasn't any, but you found it. <laughs> yes. Um, well, initially I wanted to start with something that is a bit like APL, but then I realized that uh, APL syntax is sort of beautiful, but difficult to modify. If you want to change APL syntax, you start adding a lot of stuff that's incompatible with APL, and then you end up with something that's not really an APL either. Uh, and I really wanted to avoid the whole syntactic part of APL, which is, well, arguably very important for APL, but not very important for a research project like mine. Um, so I decided to settle with a list framework. So. Obviously, a lot of the scheme code that you write will be probably a valid Camelisp uh, code. But Camelisp doesn't actually provide you with lists, for instance. It provides you with arrays. That changes a few things, but it's possible to map scheme operations into array operations. And on the other hand, um, it has tail co-optimization, like most schemes. Uh, but it doesn't really encourage the Lisp programmer point of view, where you have small recursive functions that accomplish a simple goal, right? Instead of a recursive function, you would probably prefer a reduction or a filter or some sort of other operations like expand, compress. So it's really hard to throw it into any bucket, really. I think that the easiest way to, to, to categorize it would be uh, a Lisp-like array language. So can you talk to us a bit about like what it looks like? Because I looked at the um, GitHub repo readme, and it has a couple examples. One of them is like a SKI calculus uh, with some pattern matching for the SKI combinators. And it looks very, very Lispy. Um, it's got like a parenthesis defun, SKI, variable X, and then a bunch of parentheses everywhere. Uh, but then right underneath that, it has a example of quote-unquote list operations and point-free programming and this looks very very different than list but there's not a single parentheses and you can see uh, what looks kind of like a, an iota glyph a row glyph for sort of iota and reshape and then there's uh, what kind of looks because it has the apl and haskell underneath and it kind of looks like some kind of fork syntax yes and some composing so I'm assuming both of these are valid Camilla Lisp, is that correct? Yes, that's true. What you're seeing is uh, well, a shorted version of a Camilla program because uh, it's something that certain Lisps implement, whereby if you don't want to type like 30 closing brackets at the end of your expression, mm -hmm. uh, you could use a backslash to say, there we open a parent, and the parent closed at the next closing parent. Oh, yes. really? And the forks in Camilla Lisp are um, well, like forky trainings in APL. But again, Camilla Lisp lifts the whole notion of having only two arguments. 
So you can have variadic forks, which is the new recursive. Uh, it's one of the new recursive functions where you compose uh, where you compose the uh, the functions in a way such that the middle operation of the like standard APL fork mm -hmm. gets the result pre-processed by each of the functions that follow it in the fork on each of the arguments. Right. And that tech that covers both the monadic and dyadic fork and then every any number of arguments as long as Yes. That is very cool. Uh, so that's like a superset of the forks that you get in BQ and APL and J. Yes. Um, it also implements the proposals from dialog and I say quote unquote implements. Well, actually, while implementing Camelisp, I have uh, noticed a lot of implementation problems that stem from my design choices that I made previously. I regret some of them. <laughs> uh, it happens. For instance, I've decided to settle on the base array model, which some people uh, might not necessarily agree with. Uh, at the time, I thought that the base array model makes a bit more sense for my research project than the floating array model. Uh, but then I noticed that I can't really model inner product without breaking a lot of stuff following uh, Roger's implementation that you can see on APL Wiki. And another problem they had is, do you know the APL's depth operator that Adam proposed? The step operator? Depth. Or depth operator. Uh, I think it's been brought up once or twice on this show, right? Um, we should probably describe it. <laughs> I was looking for confirmation from Adam. Uh, trying to play playback all 70-something episodes in my mind here quickly, too. <laughs> Whoa, we, we talked about this. Everyone has to know everything they've said up until now. <laughs> the, depth, the depth operator is just applying a function. Yes. Um, either at a certain number of steps into an array from the from the outermost level or at leaves of a certain minimum depth and then keep going through the array traversing the array so it's a lot like the rank operator where in the rank operator you say what rank you want to operate on but in the depth operator you say what depth you want to operate and on you can combine the two operators for various effects right yes so you can actually uh it's very easy to notice how the depth operator works in the monadic case right it's a bit more difficult to notice how it works in the dyadic case, right? Because of all the mappings and different boxing. But the problem was that Camillus has variadic functions. And implementing the variadic depth operator in turn uh, turned out to be an extremely difficult task, at least for me. And so far, I haven't found a uh, convincing model for that either, actually. So I've decided to settle on a depth operator that uh, models the shape of the first argument and then sort of coerces the rest of the arguments to play along, which is, again, not how, for instance, map works, because the map will adapt to the shape of both arguments, right? It will not follow just the first argument shape. But on the other hand, implementing depth the same way as map is very complicated. I'm not even sure how you would do it now, but um, that includes a small discrepancy. and. Because it's just a research project where I try to combine various ideas. Kabbalism is uh, might be a bit confusing to someone who who uh, is not familiar with programming. But I try my best to convey some stuff about Kabbalism in the small book that I wrote. Uh, it's present as documentation in the repo. It's I think around ninety pages, and it teaches uh, functional programming and array programming using my language. This is under the doc. Oh yeah, doc, and then slash content, and there's a bunch of tech files. Uh, is that accurate? Yes, uh, there should be a PDF somewhere, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, just under uh, doc slash, and then there's a main.pdf. Yes. Very cool. Uh, I will definitely be reading this. Well, I, I have two quick questions. Well. 
the one, hopefully one that's quick and then maybe the other one's not quick. Um, <laughs> the first one is that you mentioned that certain lisps do this thing with the backslash that controls uh, opening and ending parentheses. Uh, are there common lisps? Like I know of closure and I'm pretty sure it doesn't have that. I don't know scheme super well, but I never came across that. Like what's the most popular lisp that uh, does this kind of technique? I can't say one off, my, off the top of my head, but it's very common in uh, cases where we have restricted input. For instance, if you've ever used a TI calculator, which runs TI Basic, yeah, uh, then TI Basic will automatically put the closing parents at the end of the expression when you decide to evaluate it. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I've seen um... the same idea in some Lisp. Uh, I actually feel bad about not recording which Lisp in order to credit them. But... It's, a, it's okay. It actually, that makes me feel better because... I don't like to, uh, you know, think I'm an expert in stuff, but I've touched enough lisps that I was like, oh wow, I've never. I'm, I was if, if if you were if you were to say scheme, and then uh, I didn't, I never came across that. I'd be like, wow, I clearly didn't learn scheme well enough. Uh, <laughs> I didn't go down the scheme rabbit hole. Uh, so that's uh, that's totally okay. The second question is: so you mentioned that like the depth operator was. Uh, a lot trickier, if not, like you're still struggling with wrapping your head around how to implement that. Are there certain primitives or operators in Camilla Lisp, or wh however you refer to them, that uh, because of uh, the variaticness of functions, you were able to like unlock some like cool functionality that isn't possible in like an APL or BQN because we're limited to only, you know, dyadic functions? Like, um, do you have any examples of stuff? Like, because I imagine like you must run across some stuff that like, oh, like this is really cool. Like, you know, for for instance, like you can use forks with um, the two outer functions having any variaticness. Uh, I'm not sure if I've ever run across a case where I've needed that, but like that's probably because I know that I don't I don't have access to that, so I'm not looking for that case. But if I did have that tool, it probably would come up now and again. Um, do you have any examples of that, or or not really? Um, uh, well, I don't really have those bad examples of this on hand, but you have to also remember that. The language that you use forces a thought model upon you, right? Yes. Yeah. So because you're forced to have only two variables, it's natural for you to not seek to use three variables. Exactly. Uh, and I remember having, I distinctly remember having uh, quite a lot of examples like this uh, back when I actually invented this syntax, uh, but they're kind of difficult to come up with now. Um, I think there was some code in the convolution code example that I gave in my book. Uh, that use them. Um, one thing I'm thinking of is that uh, I don't know if Camilla List does this or not, but um, reduction on multiple arrays at once is pretty neat. So you can you could define a reduction that takes any number of arrays, um, and when it's called, it reduces the function on the it calls the function for the reduction on the current value and a new value from every one of these arrays. So you can you can take more inputs in. Um, that's one one thing that you could do. Yes, uh, that was actually something I was thinking of, but I didn't implement this feature. Uh, well, there's a lot of code in the repo, right? I've worked in it for, for a pretty long time, and the scope of the project is somewhat big. Uh, and given that it really focuses on math, uh, I spent a lot of time working primarily on the math utilities. Uh, there's a few screenshots you can see in the uh, releases tab which show you how to integrate, uh, how to perform indefinite integration of functions. Uh, they mentioned the numerical computation capabilities of Camilla Lisp. Uh, there's something with univariate teleseries that you can expand of a function. Uh, and there's also an example of uh, deriving the Jacobian matrix 
and it's determinant for the polar to uh, Cartesian coordinate transformation. Because mm -hmm. the Kabbalists can prove that the determinant is precisely equal to R. Yeah. All right. So maybe uh, one other question. I found that there is a, a one, in chapter, is it chapter or section 1.5 of, of the book is a chapter, chapter called function composition. And so we have the fork. Um, do you implement like all of the kind of, because I know you worked on reverse compose in Dialog APL. Do you have all of the kind of compose uh, and I don't know what they're called, the top and over composition functions and even more? Or do you just stick to what's an APL? There is an over. Uh, there's definitely an over. There is not an atop because it doesn't need to because of the Lisp syntax. Uh, there is a compose, the regular compose. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't really add that many composition operators because... I just didn't find a necessity because Tacit in Camilla Lisp works slightly differently from APL, where um, the composition is more explicit, right? Now that you no longer have two arguments, it's not as cumbersome to express using the variadic fork syntax or nested forks or all you can really come up with. As you have variadic forks, that enables you to do more with them is what you're saying. So there's no need for a richer set of sort of different composition patterns defined by different symbols is what you're saying. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to go and, uh, so, well, here's the next question. How do people go and play around with this? Do you have to go and locally just uh, do a git clone and, and build locally or is there a, uh, uh, well, if I go to releases tab and there's usually a jar file attached to the assets together with a digital signature with IPGP key. Mm -hmm. uh, you can run it with a dash dash IDE function, which will bring you up an IDE that I wrote with Swing across like a week and a half or so. It's not very polished, but uh, it still has some interesting features such as project management, a compressed project files, a tiling window manager, and some other features. So you can also use that. And it was also a small experiment on my side because I was used to using Ride for managing my APL programs, but I never really felt comfortable with the idea that my code resides in the APL interpreter. So in my opinion, it makes more sense if the code is attached to the project file that is loaded by the IDE. And then, for instance, the parsed data is being sent to the interpreter so that you can execute it. This is the premise on which the remote ID bundle of Kabbalist works. And so when you mentioned Swing too, it made me realize that this had to be implemented in Java, which I just went and checked and is, is the case. Um, was there any reason you chose Java other, as opposed to any of the other like 100 languages that you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it mostly came to be because of the many different iterations of Common Lisp. As you can see, it's a version, uh, version 0.3. Mm -hmm. It was a 0.2 and 0.1 as well. Uh, so the 0.1 was also written in Java, and it featured lazy evaluation, among others. Uh, but at some point, I became kind of comfortable with the GC pressure of, of Common Lisp. And then I decided that I might rewrite the whole thing in C++. Oh, wow. And I got a chunk of work done. But I never really liked my runtime design. I felt like I can never be really satisfied with a runtime that I can put together in like the free time I have from school and during vacation. For instance, uh, one, one sore point of the language was garbage collection. I mean, obviously, if you have persistent data structures, uh, your language is going to generate a lot of garbage. 
but it's somewhat easy to to alleviate, right? You just need a good garbage collector with generations. The first generation has to be copying in the nursery, and then so then you're space for old objects. Um, but that's kind of difficult to implement efficiently, right? I mean, if you look at the source code of G1GC for Java, it's extremely long and somewhat complicated as well. And I never really felt good with my implementations of the C++ runtimes. So I decided to just go back to Java and experiment a bit more. And the other reason is that I feel really productive in Java. And that's probably not representative of most of the people who work with Java, I'm certain. Um, but this feels very impressive to me. And it's probably my second favorite language for actually writing prototypes in. Really? Java? And the, assuming the first is APL? Yes. Wow. <laughs> And are you, out of curiosity, because now these days, I think they're up to, what, Java 21? It might even be uh, more modern than that these days. Are, are you in 11, 17, 21? Uh, generally the newest. Wow. And is that is your feeling productive in Java because of some of the new uh, features that they've added in 14, 17, 21? Or is, is it just because you're comfortable with the language and you, you like it for insert reasons? Most definitely it's because, uh, well... Half is because I feel so uncomfortable with the language, right? It doesn't really make you think that much about things that are not your ideas. I mean, I don't really like to, I really don't like to prototype when I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, it's normal to not know what you're doing, right? When you're starting out, you don't know what you're doing and I don't know what I'm doing. So it's difficult for me to model a memory model for what I'm going to do. I don't know what object is going to own any other object, right? But I still have to model the the whole object tree so that I don't have memory leaks, right? Or all the objects are alive when they need to be. Right. But then there is a requirements change. I think that I can implement in a better way. And then there's a problem of how do you rearrange this object tree to accommodate it for the change without having to rewrite three quarters of it into some other style frantically while trying to also do other things right java doesn't make me think of all those things right yeah i mean no definitely true i don't think that my java code is like remarkably good i I think that it's actually pretty hacky but given that i could research my ideas and verify them in such a short time span is very remarkable yeah definitely i mean gc language they eliminate a whole set of challenges that you need to think about at some point, usually pretty soon. And in a sense, that's kind of similar to APL. You know, APL eliminates things like, you know, loops and indexes. And I don't have to think about that stuff. I just can work at this level. And it uh, eliminates a certain set of problems that exist in other languages. And Also t- type conversions as well for, for various numeric types, for example. Yeah, yeah, as well, yeah. I'm interested, You, I think Rust was on the list of, not to take a... Con- an, uh, a complete left turn, but I guess it is a complete left turn because <laughs> um, Rust is a language that does the opposite of what Java is doing. They introduce a whole new facility called the Borrow Checker, as you know, Yes. Uh, for this kind of like, you know, oh, it'll save you from all these problems, but you have to now think about lifetimes and whatnot. Uh, so I'm curious, like, what are your feelings about uh, Rust as a language um, compared to C or C++ or even Java and APL? Well... If I want to prototype something high level, right? Uh, suppose the Camilla list, right? I would probably choose something mm-hmm. that's less obtrusive and generally end up with like a minimum viable product as soon as possible so that I can see what works and what doesn't. 
but on the other end of the spectrum, there is the need to have C code, right? And uh, well, the other field that I work with that I'm somewhat known for is data compression. And in data compression, there really isn't that much object wrangling as you'd think. I mean, there's a buffer, the input buffer, there's the output buffer, there's a bunch of auxiliary buffers or some simple data structures. Uh, but besides that, we don't really see that many complicated object graphs that would benefit a lot from Rust, right? I mean, Rust does, for instance, implicit bounds checking, and that would completely hammer the performance of my code. It would make it completely unusable, um, but just make it safe. I mean, uh, I wrote BZ3, which is the uh, data compressor that, uh, well, that sometimes outperforms mostly all the available general purpose data compressors. It's based on the Boros Fuller transfer and a very simple context model. Um, so I wrote it when I had my high school finals uh, during the exact month, and I finished it in a single month from the start of the how I want to go to work into having a somewhat finished product. And I made a lot of bugs, but I ultimately managed to fix them. And my current feeling is that Rust wouldn't have prevented me from having made those bugs. So I'm somewhat interested in Rust, but I don't really see an application to use it myself. I'm sure that if I had a reason to use it, I would happily use it. Yeah, well, for an interpreter specifically, it's like, so if you implement a function in the interpreter, it's going to take you know some value in the language in and put some value in the language out. So all this memory management stuff, it's like, well, you don't know where your input came from. You don't know where your output's going. So you can't say anything at all about how this function interacts with like object lifetimes or anything. So Rust's facilities for you know making sense of that and organizing that are just not powerful enough for an interpreter. Like, I mean, yes, you can you can still write safe code with Rust and Rust has a lot of other features um, coming from the ML family that are pretty nice for interpreters, but the memory model is just like... That's not helpful to write a programming language with. For instance, dialogue could never be written into Rust. Because if you have a compacting garbage collector, then the pointers start moving around your feet. And it's not like Rust has any facilities to stop you from making errors regarding those. And also the pointer provenance of Rust, if I remember correctly, um, will not guarantee that your local pointers are updated where the garbage collector decides to move some objects. Yeah, for dialogue, I mean, I think it makes a lot of decisions just based on the fact that it's written in C. So it's hard for me to say that that's necessarily, like there are probably better approaches that you would use if you're working with a language that's not so tied into the idea of pointers. Yeah, I mean, when I first, uh, when it was going to internet dialogue, uh, Morton suggested me to, you know, make the array notation evaluator. And at first I thought, I can't really commit to it because I haven't seen the code and I'm prepared to be a little scared. But um, after I joined Dialog, yeah, this, like after the first few days of interacting with Dialog code, it's actually one of my favorite code bases. It's very pleasant to work with. And despite being somewhat old, uh, it's actually very easy to hack on. I mean, on the second and third day of my work, I had actually something tangible that you could show to someone. Uh, which you did show to me, <laughs> but but maybe, the, 
<laughs> but maybe it says more about your programming skills than about the Alex code base. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm st I'm still shocked. Like I'm I'm looking at the bzip3 uh GitHub repository and you've got, you know, a matrix of what looks like 60 different, you know, Linux installations or I don't know if they're all Linux or some of them are other. And you've got benchmarks of the the Calgary corpus, the Linux kernel sources and the Silesia corpus and bzip3 or sorry is it Silesia? Silesia. Yes, and uh and you've got benchmarks and you've like outperformed like every single bzip2, gzip, lzma. I don't recognize half of these other than bzip2 and, and gzip. But uh and you did this you did this while you were in your final year of high school studying or maybe not studying for your finals. I guess potentially you didn't need to study and you were just working on like this is um this is phenomenal. Like uh I don't know. All I did was have my head in a book, you know, trying to trying to do well on my exams and somehow you found time to not only write a, a compression algorithm, but like write a compression algorithm that was a successor to like an already quite popular compression algorithm and then outperform it and a bunch of others like it. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, mind blown. Uh, <laughs> like compression is a little relative. I mean, uh, for instance, my codec by virtue of being uh, based on the BOT and context following is somewhat uh, symmetric, meaning that the compression times and the compression times are similar. And some people cross it out only for this reason. And uh, well, it's true if you consider like an example of having a web server that compresses a payload and it says it's the client. Of course, the file is going to be decompressed many times and compressed once. So it makes sense for the compression to be long and the compression to be short. But there are many examples, many cases in which compression is as frequent as decompression, right? I mean, arguably, if you have a dynamic payload on the website, it's going to be compressed on the server and then compressed on the client. It's not like you're going to send the payload multiple times if it's dynamic. And I don't really like taking a lot of credit for this because all of the ideas were already there. They just needed someone to put them together. And it was really not that difficult. I mean, for instance, the LZP algorithm was already invented by Charles Bloom. I've learned about it from his paper. Uh, so what this whole codec does is eliminating the edge cases or rather um, the edge cases, meaning files with weird distributions that other compressors would work better on and uh, trying to equalize it as a general purpose codec. So for instance, you might notice that if you compress a text file with gzip, it doesn't really compress as well as with bzip2. And uh, the reason for that is, well, there are many reasons, but uh, Lepozif algorithms used in GZIP or LZMA or whatever, uh, generally model data that has some sort of a pattern, right? Like for instance, the last occurrence of a certain letter is a fixed distance at when you record points. But if you have a sentence and you encounter the letter A at some point, uh, you can't really model where the letter A was previously seen. But if you have first is a binary file, which is like a, I don't know, 24 bit, color image, uh, then if the pixels repeat, they're going to always repeat on a certain boundary, right? Mm -hmm. This is also what uh, positive codecs uh, exploit. So it's important to think of codecs as geared for a particular purpose, right? Like all the examples you see are mostly just corpuses or text, for instance, source code. That's what basically pre-exiles that. 
it doesn't really excel at binary data, unfortunately. I mean, it sounds like you're being incredibly modest. You know, Steve Jobs took a bunch of stuff that existed and then put together the iPhone. And I'm not saying this is like Steve Jobs, but he didn't... With his bare hands. Yeah, yeah, he didn't acknowledge any of that prior work and was just like, well, you know, it's a bicycle for the mind. And everyone was like, ah! And, uh, you know, um, obviously there's pre-existing stuff, but uh, it's still very impressive. Uh, I think I think these days there's very rarely as anyone doing completely original work and not standing on the shoulders of giants of, you know, previous work, et cetera. So I caveats, you know, made, it's still extremely impressive that, um, yeah, you've done this work and not only did it, but just at a time, I think when most of us were, uh, had other priorities of just trying to graduate high school <laughs> and like university applications and whatnot. Um, yeah, I'm not sure or uh, we can pause if there's questions from other panelists. Cause I feel like there's so many different directions. Uh, Cause you have so many other projects. You've also got sort of the work at dialogue that we ha haven't talked about um, a lot in terms of uh, the array notation and quad diff and reverse compose and all that stuff. But I'll, I'll pause before we start a new topic. If there's questions from the panelists that haven't been asked about the, the stuff we've been talking about so far before we move to a next chapter or, if if someone wants to suggest the next chapter and not just leave it up to the uh you know the dictator that I am on a raycast <laughs> a benevolent dictator <laughs> a benevolent I'd like to think so I'd like to think so but I don't think a lot of dictators are thinking to themselves well you know I'm definitely malevolent uh you know <laughs> Connor's there with the iron fist more tacit <laughs> uh, well, I don't know it's not really a question I just like to to point out for the rest of you who haven't seen Camilla write C code in real time, because um, they might spur like some interesting discussions here. I've I've both seen Camilla write C code at at the office and on my couch at home, and at the dialogue user meeting. While I don't remember if it was a break, I think it was a break between talks or something like that. Maybe it was in the middle of a talk, or also in the middle of a talk. I mean, it's like. It's a whole different world. I don't know. I don't understand how you can you can program like that. And it's and like the physical obstacles. She has a little laptop, and she's got these really long nails, and and it looks very awkward to me. They can like barely push the buttons properly on the keyboard with the nails being in the way. And then I'm looking. Obviously, I don't understand this gobbledygook they call C, um, just weird symbols and stuff. But and but then it's just. just selecting stuff in in the editor and just pasting a whole bunch of it the same thing or and then making some modifications to each one of these these copies and then oh and now now it runs and uh that was on the couch uh, at the user meeting she was like she must have been bored by whatever that was going on at the time so she just added another primitive to dialogue um like on the fly like that um but i i would like to know how do you even go there how like didn't even meet a person in real life that was doing programming for years and and so you're just busy with things and you get better at it or were there influences even though if they were virtual that helped you to get that kind of to that kind of level of programming or you're just very clever naturally i think that i got so much good at programming by rounding my head at it I don't think there's particular reasons. I mean, it gets with practice, right? 
the thing you mentioned about uh, working with the dialogue code, uh, well, a lot of the issues that you don't see in APL pop up in C code, right? When you deal with strings in APL, you don't really care whether they're Unicode or ASCII or whatever. They just come from software and you deal with them. But in the C code, as you mentioned, I kept copy pasting stuff all the time because I had a whole switch for the character type, whether it's 8-bit, 60-bit, 32-bit. And that took 400 lines of code. That's the same thing. So there's no secret. You just... I mean, I heard a quote once that the difference between junior and senior programmers is that a senior programmer is just willing to sit for like 10 hours in a row and bang their head at a problem and they just, they know that they can solve it. It'll just take us a certain amount of time. And a junior programmer, they get like 30 minutes into it and they're like, ah, I just, I probably don't know how to do this. And they give up. And that's the only difference. It's not like a matter of skill. It's just a matter of like belief in one's ability. If I keep at this, I can solve it. And I don't know if that's like actually like, you know, I think the person was joking, but like it kind of resonated with me. It's like a lot of the times I know I can solve this and it's like six hours later and I'm still, you know, trying to diagnose some diagnostic and then like eventually it works and then you get up and you run around the room. But like there's no real skill level difference other than like I know within a, <laughs> an amount of time I can get this. And it kind of what you were saying, Camilla, reminded me of that. It's just when when Adam asked you, how did you get so good? And it's just, oh, I just banged my head at problems and, <laughs> and got better as time went on. Um, my real motivation is just that I really want to learn how things work. I mean, I really approach problems thinking I can solve it. This is simple. More, I keep thinking, um, I want to know how to solve this problem, right? And I feel like this is a good approach to problem solving because if you want to learn how to solve a problem, you don't necessarily just write the code and call it a day, right? You want to learn more about the problem, about the happy paths and the sad paths of the problem, and about the variance of the problem. It's very educational and very fun, at least for me. So you spend a lot of time like researching the problem space before you even start coding, or while you're coding? Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the... You said there's no secret. And, I mean, yeah, there's no... It's not like there's one thing that'll make you a great programmer that's hidden. There are a thousand things that you should know if you want to program well, and none of them are secret, but you need to know a, at least a substantial portion of it. So it's, uh, you know, committing a lot of time to it is one thing. When you finally did meet somebody who was a programmer in person in real life, was there anything different that happened? I mean, you'd, be, you'd come a long way just over the internet connections before that. So once you met someone in real life, does anything different there? Yes, I think that once I went to uni and I started interacting with other programmers and started learning the stuff I never really had an occasion to learn, I become more well-rounded, right? I mean, it's difficult to convey, but if you're an amateur programmer like me, you generally tend to research things that you find interesting, right? You don't really care about what you should learn. You care about what's fun. And if you go to university, uh, it's the other way around. The things are not necessarily that fun, but you should learn them. Ah, yeah. And if you're having fun, then you have a better incentive to go and just do... It's almost, it's almost like science for science's own sake here. Yeah. Research about how the world works for its own sake. And then you better... Turns out you're better equipped. Yes. So I guess all the universities, they should just kick out all those course requirements and just say, here's a computer, go have fun, learn stuff. (laughs) 
Well, you need something that's that's fun overall, but it has that um that kind of embeds in all the non-fun bits that you need to learn in a way that you don't notice. Yes, most definitely. Uh, when I was working on my data compression book, um, I was thinking, uh, well, I was definitely that good at statistics, right? But uh, I knew the very basics to get myself around. But I really discovered that I quite liked them. And then I went to a university course that taught me statistics. And I, I thought to myself that if it wasn't for the fact that I had to research this before, I would have been completely lost. And yes, that just proves your point. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot of statistics through uh, benchmarking because, um, and and some adjacent stuff like with sorting. There's some statistics around like sampling the input that you want to sort to figure out, like you can s sample it randomly and figure out if certain problems will occur with with some algorithm. And so, yeah, I've gotten a much better understanding of statistics by saying, well, I want to know whether this property holds, and I have this information. How do I figure it out? Um, and that uh, that can get pretty heavy on various statistical methods. Yeah, I also liked uh, the randomized algorithms part of my algorithms course. Oh, yeah. So we were basically discussing how many comparisons does an insertion sort make in the expected case if, for instance, uh, the list is uh, uniformly random or whatever. It was pretty fun. I quite like it. All right. So here's uh, my mind is still being blown. So you've got your first book, which we actually haven't even mentioned the title of the title of the book is an introduction to functional and array programming and if i saw that if i was walking through a bookstore and i saw that i'd be like holy smokes the lord has like shone down the sun on me and placed a book here just for me uh so that's the that's the title of your first book you just and also this is n none of this on your already amazing basically resume of like an about me page that lists all your stuff doesn't mention this book just casually didn't make the short list of stuff that you've done is written a book. And now you casually mentioned you have, I'm not sure if you finished right. Have, do you have a second book on data compression? Yes. I work on a small book on data compression. Uh, it supposed to explain the basic methods such as static minimum redundancy codes, uh, context modeling, impulsive methods. And well, I don't consider myself an innovator in data compression, but the reason why I'm making this book is it was just so painful to research this all myself. And I feel like I would be doing a service, I think, to a lot of people just by giving them a book which explains the concepts, give them exercises, code samples of all the stuff that you need to know to get started. I'm at approximately uh, 100 pages now, and I plan to work a bit so during my uh, spring break, which is coming up very soon. And is this the, so actually there is a section that says talks, lectures, and papers. Is this the statistical data compression pending or is this, that's a paper and not a book? Uh, that's a talk I'm going to give on April 22nd. So you've got one completed book and you're in the midst of finishing your second book. Yes. I also, before wrote a small booklet, which is like approximately 60 pages on how I implemented the Lisp in Malbulge, but I wouldn't consider it a book. It's just more like a funny explanation. I guess that's what you do over spring break. <laughs> this is this is like uh, you're giving me like you're like increasing my imposter syndrome uh, as this interview goes on. As as I discover, oh, yeah, the book section I just thought would be too much. I didn't. I left that off of my about me page uh, because uh, you know I just it it didn't make the cut. Um, wow. All right. Well, uh, you know the journey continues. We still have uh, hopefully a little time left. 
Um, if, if we're allowed to st start kind of a new topic, it's been mentioned a couple of times. Um, you interned at, at Dialog uh, previously and you worked on a ton of stuff. So maybe I'll leave it up to you. Like I'm super curious about uh, Reverse Compose because I know Adam has referred to it in, I want to say at least a couple of the upcoming features when you do like a Dialog 18.0 talk. There's always a section that says for future releases. And I think Reverse Compose is one of those things. Um, but yeah, maybe if you want to talk about like some of the work, whatever you found most exciting when you were at Dialog and, and your time there. Well, I had a really good time. I really liked it, the Dialog. I think that uh, was a very uh, good experience for me. I've learned quite a lot. And uh, I met some people to which in some ways I look up to. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people at Dialog will remember me as the most unlucky intern to have ever been at Dialog. <laughs> Why is that? No, she just Camille just keeps having uh, incidents and accidents, where from uh, public transit delays to slipping on steps and etc. This uh, so nothing to do with the code base, uh, <laughs> the, the no. commuting and no. uh, you know uh, going between floors. She did not by by mistake erase our entire code base or anything like that. Uh, nothing of the sorts. Well, you only ended up in the hospital once, right? While you were interning. Yes. Chaos. Hopefully it's not because you were programming in your head or something like that, which I probably assume you do from time to time. You know, you don't have your computer, so you're just... She was programming in her head, but it's not because she was programming in her head. She's always programming in her head. That doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Camila, do you even program while you're programming? I think so, yes. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let my I'll let my fingers type out the code that I have stored, and I'll work on like the next problem. Uh... Actually, it's something that I've experienced a few times where I, I'm faced with a problem, and I intuitively know the solution, so I just type it out, and then I convince myself that it's correct because at first I don't understand it. I'm not sure it's just something weird about me or whether it's a universal experience. Have any of you experienced that ever? No, I think you're. I think you're operating at a level. At least I'm speaking for myself personally, not the rest of uh, not the rest rest of the podcast panelists. But uh, I think you're operating at a level, a couple uh, a couple of rungs, if not like on a whole different ladder than <laughs> than what I where I go. It's at. not an experience I'm familiar with. That's for sure. <laughs> We're sitting here in in ND space, looking at a. A uh, bleak projection of your N plus something space. <laughs> Was Marshall? Were you going to say that you've uh, you? Yeah. Well, well, I do go sometimes from understanding it how it works in a very roundabout way to understanding you know why it really works. Stephen, Stephen, you're the last one. Uh, so Marshall's the closest to being on the same ladder or whatever this analogy. Or I was thinking of Interstellar where. Uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Matthew McConaughey. You know, he's in some other dimension that you know that the people can't see, and uh, you know, maybe that's what Camilla is here. And Marshall's up there, kinda. You know, I'm definitely just in 2D land or 3D land or wherever where the rest of us are. It, it happens to me with other people's code that I think I understand it somewhat, and then I get like some better understanding of it, like really understand it, so I can explain it right. But my own code, I, I think. I think that I was going to say, I think the difference is that I'm not usually writing it before I understand it. <laughs> That's how you should do it, yes. Yeah, I should, but <laughs> obviously it's not working for me. <laughs> My father spoke to me about, about uh, he called the Zen type programming. He would meditate on the problem for a long time, closed eyes, not doing anything else at the time. And then you go and write, possibly punch the entire program. 
and just run it and it would be bug free. I actually have heard this as well. Sean Parent, who's a many time guest on my other podcast, he's I've heard stories that he also will sometimes just like, you know, just sit there for hours and just like think in his head and then types it out and then it just works. And I, I don't know if that's like if that's like a mythical, you know, exaggeration, but like I, this is the second time I've heard sort of that there is a person out there that just kind of sits, you know, cross-legged. I'm sure he's not cross-legged, but that's what I picture, you know, it's like meditation with like, you know, clouds lowering from the heavens and, and then, and then this moment of, uh, I have it. And then they just, they go type and, and then the code works. Uh, I never asked my father about this, but I also had this internal image of definitely sitting on the floor you can't sit on the chair and do this i think you have to sit on the yeah, floor I have no idea and then and then you go and type or punch depending on which year you're at uh, i think i find rewriting um avoids a lot of debugging so when i when i've got a draft of the code i just keep rewriting to make it look better and remove redundancies and see if there's better ways i can put it and um in that process i think I find and eliminate uh, a lot of errors. I see connections I didn't, I didn't before. Yeah, I quite like this process too, actually. So is this as in like revising or is in just completely throwing out and writing it again from memory? Oh, that's a good one. No, I'm talking about the revising, though the, the complete rewriting is, uh, uh, is, is a good idea. And I like doing that too. If I think I've, 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 I'm, I'm, if I think, oh no, this is this is the wrong approach. Um, maybe a third of it's wrong. Start from scratch. But the the focus, my focus, is always on getting it to look as beautiful as possible. I, I well, I say beautiful. I I guess I'm relying on an aesthetic sense, a minimum of redundancy, looking for the connections and logical logical patterns in it, uh, and code written that way is much more likely to work <laughs> yeah i did this once at dialogue actually um oh it, it wasn't in fact in apl i think we were writing php for uh, the web server and i was sitting with one of the dialogue um one of the dialogue staff and i sketched out the php and he very patiently watched while i fiddled and fiddled and fiddled with it and rewrote lines and broke lines in different places and moved them around until I was satisfied and fiddled with the indentation. And then it just ran. <laughs> and he was like, holy cow, Batman. I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, I do that a lot with um with arithmetic in particular, where you know there are so many different ways to write your your index arithmetic. Um I'll try to arrange it so that it becomes clear that there's like a concept coming out of it. Like one thing that I often find is that initially I write based on an index from the, or based on the location of the beginning of the segment I'm working on. But then if I rewrite the algorithm to be focused on the end of the segment, it actually becomes a lot clearer. Um, so I'll explicitly compute at the beginning, you know, start plus length is end. Um, and then do, do things relative to that. Um, so that's sort of rewriting, I think. Yeah, that that gives you a much better um, comprehension of what exactly you're writing. Mm. All of this, you know, talk about uh, enlightened programming, for lack of a better term, makes me want... I, I was searching it up uh, in the last couple of minutes to see if I could see if you had done any live streams, Camilla, or something like where you've you've coded live or given a talk where you've done some demo. 
And uh, I, I didn't find it. Maybe it exists online. But if, if you haven't, uh, I think I, I would be definitely one person interested. And I think a few of our listeners, if not the panelists, uh, would be interested to see you, you code. Because it sounds like, yeah, that you are operating at a certain level uh, that uh, would be inspiring, if not to, you know, aspire to, but at least to see. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about that. Uh, well, I really like doing live demos. Because the golden rule of live demos is that they always fail. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> and I've never thought about live streaming, but um, well, there there is at least one person in the Pilot's group that has seen me program live. Bob, you were going to say something too. Well, I know you were talking about your um, abilities C programming, and Adam was talking about that. Um, Arthur Whitney has a particular style of C programming. What? What's your perception of that? Is that something that you've looked at, or is that uh, how, how do you feel that works with the way you program in C? Well, when I was going to go to dialogue, I was actually scared the code be written like that, and this is why I didn't want to commit to having done anything. Um, <laughs> but I think that it works if you're like a lone developer working on a research project or something. I've actually tried it once uh, for my advent of code solutions. Uh, in 2023, but I see the merits, but I don't necessarily see why would you want to write a whole program like that. It's very pretty for algorithms, right? That's for sure. But I think that when you deal with uh, the programming parts of interacting with systems, etc., it's no longer as pretty. So I can, um, I mean, and I think a lot of that is accurate. I can talk about now that I'm working with NGNK, how I feel about that, because um, Nick has modeled a lot of his style on um, Arthur's. And I don't th think it's exactly the same. But um, what I notice about the NGNK interpreter is that there's, um, so I mean, there's a fixed header of all these definitions that you have. You know, it defines A of whatever and B of whatever, and it uses up pretty much every letter. And a lot of them twice because they're both a type and a function. Um, <laughs> so you have this fixed header, but then after that, there's just no abstraction. Everything is written out as exactly what operations you do. So like, even if there are things that um, are applied to multiple types, what he'll do is get the, get the basic operation simple enough so that it fits on one line or a fraction of a line and just write it out for each type. Um, and this has actually seems so far to be pretty nice to work with because, I mean, everything's right there. If you understand the basic model of how this code is written, you know exactly what it's doing. Um, and I was actually even thinking as I was writing it, you know, in many ways, this is a lot simpler than Dialog because Dialog has this whole memory management structure under it. And there are a bunch of kind of hidden things you have to know about working with stuff. Um, and I guess there are a few hidden things in NG and K. Um, they're, like there are operations that aren't that are sort of utility like, but they operate in in chunks in order to vectorize. So you have to know that you know if you if you write all the the integers up to some value, it's not going to stop at the end. It's going to go past it. Um, but there's not there's not like this whole underlying framework to learn about you know when things are going to move around under you and how you have to register things with the garbage collector and so on. So and I don't know if the style of writing enables that, but it kind of seems connected that it um, that it lets you write um, write things out in full more simply, and so then you don't rely on kind of higher level abstractions. And I think it would only work up to a point, but 
that's that's what how I see the advantage. Yeah, I mean, I can fully agree, actually, because if you look at the array style, the R13 style C code, it's very ad hoc, right? And if you look at C, uh, C code, J code, APL code, it's also very ad hoc. I mean, look at code different source code, and then you can see a bunch of ad hoc implementations of trees based on, uh, you know, arrays or whatever. Uh, but APL and the quote-unquote written C programming models uh, kind of make it less painful to type everything out ad hoc. It's kind of fun. Yeah. All right. We've blown past the hour, Mark, as per usual. I mean, I feel like our listeners would be upset at this point if we somehow landed the plane at you know, for the 55 minute mark, they'd be like, whoa, 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 this is, it's the goal, but it's not what we expect. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what hour mark you're even talking about. I don't get a particular mark at an hour. Well, I usually start recording like, you know, T minus 30 seconds before uh, we start uh, actually recording. So, uh, you know, we don't, unless if you look at the clock when we we say, Welcome to a Raycast, although this is like meta now. And the... So you actually have like a mark for an hour that you're looking that, that's at? That's what I'm saying. That there's nothing happened. So it says zero zero fifty nine, and then it says one zero zero, and it doesn't feel any different. I mean, I assumed it was a conceptual mark. <laughs> oh, but no, like, uh, I guess that's the thing is, you know, Audacity, which is super meta, and the listener is like, what is happening here? <laughs> this may not make it in at all. No, I think they're aware that we usually go over an hour. But uh, I actually have like a little, if I share my screen, like, uh, you know, blue bars, blah, 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 and like a little red line that's going. And so uh, I can see all the, like a, a 30 second window of time. So I actually do at one point, I see if I'm paying attention, the hour mark like slide by the screen. And now all I see is like 111 to. You that know, moves in front of you. Wow. Okay. 12. Uh, Anyways, that's what I mean by the mark. There is actually a mark and it does go by. <laughs> yeah. Whereas everyone else is just looking at a Zoom window. Um, so I'm not just making something up for, uh, you know, uh, colloquial wisms on, on the podcast. Uh, and, and just uh, to put all the cards on the table, when Connor does his intro, I look up at the corner of my screen and see what time it is. <laughs> so there you go. But um, I guess maybe, yeah, before we totally wrap up... Uh, is there any last questions or comments from any of the, any of the panelists or maybe any last sort of things you want to say, Camille? I, f I feel like it's, they were definitely going to be having you back at some point in the future with the rate that you are producing content and books. And uh, you said you've got there's an upcoming talk section. Um, we'll make sure to, uh, like I said in the beginning, we'll link your Dialogue 23 talk that's currently out um, on, on the YouTubes. But uh, the future talks we'll try and keep an eye out for as well and uh, announce them maybe in the announcement sections. Uh, but yeah, any, any closing thoughts from the panelists or anything? Last questions, quick questions. What's next? What are you going to be doing next, Camilo? I mean, you're 19. <laughs> well, that's a pretty broad question. It is. I, I, I'm twice your age and I've done very little, tiny fraction of the amount that you've been doing. So you, I suppose you could just retire and be happy with a, 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 a fulfilling life you've had so many accomplishments and and just notice on your website uh, you have had two <laughs> mentions on wikipedia not one so uh really might be the other one <laughs> uh the other one was about cracking the mesen twister oh yes that was a really long time ago at age 14 forget about that uh, i just thought too that 19 means that you were born in like 2005 four four oh <laughs> i feel so old <laughs> You'll get over it, Connor. 
Okay, okay, Camilla, can you implement negative number support for Quadia? <laughs> Have I spoken it? <laughs> Camilla, who would you like to hear as a guest on the Arraycast? I think that's someone I would really like to hear, but might be very difficult to actually reach out to, is Henry Baker. Henry Baker has actually published in Code Quad. He is an APLer. He did a lot of work around Symbolics. He is one of the pioneers of, of efficient garbage collector strategies. Also someone I kind of look up to. Yeah. He has a Wikipedia page. Uh, American computer scientist who has made contributions in garbage collection, functional programming languages, and linear logic. And one of the founders of Symbolics, a company that was designed... That design and manufactured a line, a line of Lisp machines. Yeah, I think Elijah Stone has mentioned him once or twice. Okay. Yes, because uh, he's related to the whole uh, CL garbage collection stuff because of his treadmill collector and the other stuff. Well, we will definitely reach out to Henry Baker. Henry, if you're listening, we'll be reaching out. Uh, odds are you're not. Um, <laughs> but on like the you know 0.01% chance that you are, uh, expect an email. And... Uh, yeah, this is this has been wildly fun, Camilla, uh, to hear about all your accomplishments that you list and all the ones that you don't list because you have too many of them. Um, I hope we'll be able to have you back on as a guest in the future and and chat about what you've been working on. And and you're still in university, that's correct? Yes. Okay, so yeah, we're we're expecting great things. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. I can't I can't wait to you know um, hear about you know what you're what you're doing after that. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll get to see you, you know, at uh, some a conference in the future or something. I'm not not sure about Dialogue uh, 24, 25, but um, yeah, fingers crossed that uh, we'll we'll get to see some more talks from you and maybe even a live stream at one point. Because um, yeah, this this has been super fun. Um, but before we go, we will throw it over to Bob, who will tell you how you can reach us. You can reach us at contact at arraycast.com. Although at this point, I feel fully unquote. <laughs> Un, unable to answer any questions that anybody has because I'm just <laughs> I one of my favorite movies when I was a young man was Amadeus um, Milos Forman's oh, yeah. uh, Amadeus with um, the story of Mozart and Salieri and I I sit here thinking I can see how Salieri would react to Mozart but it's much nicer just to sit and yeah. and and just be amazed at at abilities than it is. Which was probably what he actually did. Yeah, possibly, because it's not as good a movie. That's true. That's probably true. But um, I can also see why you'd be very, you know, if you'd, if you'd worked your whole life at something, you'd feel like, you know, I've done nothing. But on the other hand, just to, to witness somebody who's so able as such abilities, um, honestly, I uh, thank you for being on. I just, I've... Um, I'm not sure enjoyed is the right term to use because I don't know that I've understood everything that's gone on. But <laughs> to be to be witness of it is is I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Think about how many programming languages the Camilla could have mastered instead of sitting with us for an hour. Right? Yeah. I hope we've made good use of your time. Thank you for inviting me. It was great. No, thanks. Thank you for taking the time uh, yeah, to be interviewed. And and maybe we'll we'll leave a couple links to for those that haven't seen the Amadeus movie. There's a couple amazing scenes where Soliari like comes out with this, you know, oh, I've been working on this for a week, and then Mozart says, Oh, you know, and starts tinking around, or maybe this, this, and there's the one scene where he plays the piano upside down just for fun. And, <laughs> and it's uh there's there's some great I'm sure we can find them on YouTube and we'll we'll link them and uh, that'll be the uh 
the metaphor for, for what has happened today. <laughs> and everything that doesn't involve the relationship of Mozart and Salieri is surprisingly accurate. So <laughs> they knew the history. They just they just chose to insert some things. Yeah, it made, made those scenes were good, though. Those scenes were good, even if they weren't entirely historically accurate. Though. But anyways, thank you again, Camilla, for coming on. And uh, hopefully we'll get to chat uh, in the future. With that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming.